Bill was a 55-year-old accountant, father of three boys, fun-loving, super nice guy, loved his wife, and had a great calm life. He was fine for the most part of his life. He had good health. He managed to see his primary care physician once a year for a checkup and took a couple of medications for his back pain and cholesterol, but nothing else, otherwise very healthy. His wife noted that he was getting messier in the kitchen and the bedroom, and he was not as organized anymore. She initially attributed it to being tired after some rope trips and not sleeping very well, but it was getting quite noticeable, and she started hearing about some issues with his clients as well. He was an accountant, so he was in touch with a lot of people for most of the days. This was very uncharacteristic for, for this hyper-vigilant and a hyper-organized person. He was actually starting to lose information on some of his clients and also starting to misfile information uh, about his cases in his computer hard drive. His friends thought that he was going through some kind of a midlife crisis and was experiencing some depression. So he visited his doctor about this issue and he was started on treatment for depression, um, but his symptoms continued to get worse and the family didn't notice any improvement. At the same time, his co-workers and his friends noticed some changes in his personality as he started to become a bit disinhibited. He just couldn't really control himself and the filters were getting thinner. Um, and he was disinhibited with his language he would make some really strange comments about female coworkers at his office, very uncomfortable. And this was completely uncharacteristic for Bill. What was most disturbing to his family was that he was completely unaware of these personality changes. Over the next few months, this meticulous financial wizard started to actually make mistakes with his personal finances and some really basic mathematical calculations. He was very agitated. He couldn't carry on a conversation because he would get distracted very quickly. He would get mad over small little issues like spilling some tea on the kitchen counter. He would start yelling at his neighbors. He would get scared of less familiar faces, very paranoid, and the list went on and on. About a year after Bill's symptoms had begun, his primary care physician convinced him to see a neurologist. The neurologist did a thorough workup, a neuropsychological assessment, MRI of his brain to look at the volume and the structure of his brain, an FDG PET scan of the head to look at the metabolism of brain cells, some lab tests, blood tests, and finally he was diagnosed with a behavioral variant of FTD or frontotemporal lobe dementia, which is the most common type. It was hard for his wife and his kids to see him change so much in such a short period of time, and they were just devastated. They were told that there was no disease-modifying medication for this condition, and so he was placed on some medication to control his behavior, some antipsychotics, antidepressants, but over time, his disease got worse and worse and worse over the next couple of years, and he passed away at the age of 60. This is a very common presentation for frontotemporal lobe dementia. And as neurologists in clinic, it's very, very difficult to see someone quickly regress to their, you know, a, a personality that is almost unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. 
And we wanted to take this time to talk about frontotemporal lobe dementia with you all. It's kind of timely because we just got a word that um, Bruce Willis uh, was diagnosed with uh, frontotemporal lobe dementia. We kind of actually spoke about this because when they told us that he was having aphasia, and that's all they told us, and one of the diagnoses that we kind of uh, focused on was frontotemporal lobe dementia. And, and that gives you a clue. There are different variants of frontotemporal lobe dementia. The most common one is the behavioral one. And we see this uh, a little more commonly because we are dementia specialists. So we see this more often. Uh, the person themselves are often incredulous and they're, they, don't, they don't think they have any problems. But the, the behavior changes are, are sometimes subtle, but sometimes quite shocking. Right. Uh, uh, I've had several patients who... Uh, have been normal, and all of a sudden they do weird things like take their clothes off in public, um, uh, defecate um, in the middle of a movie theater or somewhere in public. Definitely um, disinhibited with language, saying things that they would have never said before. Some of them even sexually explicit and, and disinhibited. So these things are very much out of character. Yes, they start subtle, but but they go on. And, and here's the uh, other unusual aspect of it. Often the cognitive elements, the memory and, and other things, um, uh, is not as affected. So you do a cognitive test and their memory is completely intact, yet the behavioral component is affected significantly. Right. Um, and so that kind of gives you a clue as far as um, the kind of picture to look for. It almost is similar to psychiatric conditions it like is. schizophrenia, yes, yes. major depression, anxiety, and some other forms of psychiatric conditions um, when you compare it to, you know, the typical dementias that we're used to hearing about, which essentially is cognitive issues like you were talking about. Correct. So correct. we'll take this opportunity to kind of take a deep dive um, into the characteristics of frontotemporal lobe dementia. We're going to talk about um, its various types. Uh, we'll talk about how neurologists diagnose frontotemporal lobe dementias, what the treatments are, and what the future holds uh, for this disease. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the frontotemporal lobe dementias now. Um, frontotemporal lobe dementia is essentially a neurodegenerative condition, which is, uh, which essentially means that there is damage to brain cells in a de degenerative way. It's a clinical syndrome, and it consists of multiple different types of presentations and symptoms. It's characterized mostly by a progressive deficit in behavior, in executive function, mm -hmm. and also in language. As far as its prevalence is concerned, uh, there are some series that say that it is the third most common type of uh, dementia after vascular dementia and Lewy body dementia. Well, Alzheimer's is the most common type. Correct. That's about 60 to 70% of all dementias are Alzheimer's disease. And then there's vascular dementia. And then it's either frontotemporal lobe dementia or Lewy body mm -hmm. dementia. It can actually occur in combination with other types of dementia. It is the most common type of early onset dementia, which means that people usually develop this condition at a very young age, usually uh, younger than 60, 60 years yeah. of age. So if, if there's a dementia that's a dementia patient that's younger than 60, it's more likely that it is um, frontotemporal lobe dementia than, than uh, Alzheimer's. Almost one-to-one, -one, but a little more common uh, to have uh, FTD than Alzheimer's for those before age of 60. Absolutely. The first description of a patient with frontotemporal lobe uh, dementia was named by Arnold Pick 
in 1892. And the person had aphasia, which means they had difficulty speaking. Um, they had atrophy or shrinkage of uh, their frontal lobes. And they had dementia, which means they had memory problems and general cognitive issues um, at a very young age. And then in 1911, when Dr. Eloise Alzheimer's uh, was working on different mm -hmm. types of dementia, he recognized the characteristic association with pick bodies. So he basically was able to identify specific types of um, regional masses and bodies in the brain, and he named them picks, pick right. bodies. Right. And uh, that's why frontotemporal lobe dementia and picks disease are the, the, the names are used interchangeably, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's usually rare, and it tends to occur in people um, younger than uh, age uh, 60, like we said, and the range is usually between age 45 to age 64. Have you ever seen cases who are in their 40s? I have. I have if, in fact, to be honest, I've only seen one case of Alzheimer's in their 40s, but multiple cases of frontotemporal dementia in their 40s, and, and of course, lots more in their uh, 50s. Uh, so it's uh, when it comes to younger patients, I'm almost I have a tendency to think, oh, it must be frontotemporal dementia, and all their uh, if there's any element of behavior or organizational capacity, then it's almost certain that it's frontotemporal dementia. Absolutely, in the early stages of this disease, when the person presents with the disease, they usually have just one <clears throat> symptom, one or two symptoms, and then as the disease progresses, they gain they gain more and more symptoms. Um, it is difficult to predict how long someone with frontotemporal lobe dementia will have the symptoms and how mm -hmm. long they will live. It just varies um, depending on the, the genetic variation or the symptoms of onset and other lifestyle risk factors exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Now, some people can live more than 10 years after the diagnosis, while others live only about two to, two to three years after they're diagnosed. The, the main thing that, that has an effect on it is because the behavioral component becomes worse and worse. They have to use antipsychotic medications, which can have significant consequences. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right, so at this point, um, we don't really have any treatment for frontotemporal lobe dementia. Um, there's nothing that we can do to stop it, to slow it down. Uh, but there are so many ways that we can actually manage the symptoms. Um, so during this conversation, we're going to use the term frontotemporal disorders or frontotemporal dementia to characterize a group of diseases. And so we're going to use the abbreviation FTD from here on. And this is usually commonly used in neurological clinics as well. And it's important to note that with some frontotemporal lobe or FTD disorders, FTDs, the primary symptoms are problems with speech or movement. So people can actually start having difficulty speaking or difficulty understanding. They can also have difficulty with movement. And we're going to go into some of the details of what those kind of variants are. And some of them actually develop muscular problems. And we'll talk about the variants that actually have neuromuscular diseases as well. Now, the symptoms of FTD are often misunderstood. Um, usually family members start thinking that because the person is misbehaving, uh, because the person is angry or frustrated, that it is essentially a psychological or psychiatric issue. And I think a lot of times a proper diagnosis is delayed because of this confusion between mm -hmm. psychiatric presentation and true neurodegenerative issues. Um, let's move on to the different types of FTD. So there are essentially um, two different uh, types, and then there's one neuromuscular, so in general, three. There's a behavioral variant, which is the most common one, 
And then there is a language variant, which has primary progressive aphasia in it. Mm -hmm. And then there is one that is associated with a neuromuscular disorder as well. Because the behavioral variant is very common, let's start with that. It is the most common type. It involves changes in personality, behavior, and judgment. Basically, what Bill was experiencing is a behavioral variant. People with this disorder have problems with their cognition, but most of the time their memory is essentially in intact. They can have the beginnings of uh, issues with planning, sequencing, doing one thing after the other, th thinking through which steps come first, what comes second, and so on. Yeah, it's the executive function as well. Basically, the whole concept that executive function testing that we do actually looks into this component. This is ability to solve problems, ability to organize, ability to make lists, ability to uh, follow directions. Uh, for example, we ask, one of the questions we ask is, you know, give me a list of uh, all the words you can think of that start with the letter F in one minute, or all the animals that you can think of, all the marine animals that you can think of, all the furniture in one minute. And with patients with frontal temporal lobe dementia, especially behavioral component or executive aspect, they have difficulty making lists. It's remarkable. They're fine. They're talking to you. They're, they seem completely normal. Yet when you tell them to make a list of, you know, all the words starting with A or F or animals, they can't name maybe more than five in one minute, which is remarkable. And it's not anxiety. It's not fear. It's just that they can't draw that part of the brain. And this gives you a clue into the function of the frontal lobe, which is a remarkably new part of the brain. But what I mean by new is in comparison to all, all other primates, the one part of the brain uh, that's different, our part of the brain that's different compared to the apes and others is the frontal lobe, which is this judgment, organization, inhibition um, uh, component of the brain. By the way, the other animals that have as big a uh, brain uh, frontal lobes are elephants and whales and dolphins. So we're missing out on an entire world of experience of these beautiful animals. And, and the, the behavioral component is, uh, was actually told to us through this incredible story of Phineas Cage, uh, uh, Gage, that uh, you, uh, I think you should go into that. This was the first time that we actually became aware of the fact that, oh, our frontal lobe might have something to do with behavior. And this is before pathology, we've, well, not, I mean, sophisticated pathology, definitely before imaging techniques. But it told us about the fact that, oh, our behaviors, it's not just ad hoc, it comes from our brains. We're in, our, in a particular part of the brain and particular types of behaviors. So it gives you a little bit of clue into our ability to control ourselves, our ability what we call free will, well, is it? Is it coming from the brain, that regions that can be altered? This has tremendous implication, and this story kind of gives you a little clue into that. Okay, so I'll, I, I won't go over the different types of FTD. We'll I'm just to, going we'll to, get back to this, yeah. um, tell everyone about Phineas Gage. Um, so Phineas Gage is essentially a guy who began neuroscience. He <laughs> was a perfect case presentation. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that he went through all of that, but... He was the one who made us understand, you know, how the brain essentially works. So, so let me tell you his story. So he was um, he was a 25 year old guy, um, and back in 1848, uh, specifically on September 13, 1848, he was working as the foreman of a crew preparing railroad railroad, uh, railroad beds. I can't yes. say railroad yes, today. Yes. 
and this was somewhere in Vermont. And he was using an iron tamping rod. I actually had to Google it to see what I, that so was. So you know what that is? Tell, tell so, everyone. So what they do is they, they would create a hole and then put a piece of metal and then the, uh, uh, the railroad tracks would be bound to that. But in order to create that, they had to put some dynamite to make holes. And somebody had the, the, the unfortunate job of tempering it down. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. so he, he actually had that unfortunate job and he was tamping it down. And uh, what happened was, uh, so he was packing explosive powder yeah. into the into a hole, and so the powder detonated. You and would it think sent. that would happen when you're hammering piece of metal. Not a very smart thing to do. Yeah. It's just so sad that well, I mean that there was no other technology or means back then. But so basically, it exploded, and it sent a forty-three inch long, one point two five inch diameter rod hurling upwards. So it penetrated Gage's left cheek, it tore through his brain, and it exited his skull before landing 80 feet away. So it just kind of just like, you know, it bulleted through his face, brain, and he miraculously survived the accident. He was actually able to speak and walk right after that accident, and they took him to a cart, and he was taken to the town to see the town doctor. He was still conscious later that evening and he was able to remember what happened to him and he remembered his friends' names and his co-workers. And he even, he well, this is the doctor actually documenting everything. He even said that he didn't wish to see his friends because he would be back to work in about a day or two. This is actually one of the most well-documented cases ever. Right. Because we basically, fought from that date, was it September 13th? September 13th, Th- yeah. 1848. 48. From that day on, he was followed, he was uh, um, uh, recorded, his life was recorded. It's one of the best recorded neurological cases. Absolutely. So, and the doctor that basically recorded all of this was Dr. Martin Howard. I hope I'm saying his uh, name correctly, but yes, Martin Martin Harlow, sorry. So this that was a doctor, Dr. John Martin Harlow documented everything. Um, and so after a few days, he started developing an infection. He was in a comatose state until October 30th, October 3rd. And then essentially a few days later, he woke up, he started walking around and slowly and gradually his intellectual functioning started to improve. Mm -hmm. And um, basically he he lost his vision in the left eye um, and he was able to take care of himself and his activities of daily living. And um, he could remember how much, you know, how about his injury. There were certain things that was lost on him. For example, he couldn't really count his money anymore. He couldn't do mathematics, basic mathematics anymore. And so all of these changes were documented. But over a few weeks and months, even though he was able to walk out and he would walk and talk to people, his friends noticed that he wasn't himself anymore. He was not the same Phineas Gage that they knew. And, you know, he was always very diligent. He was very friendly. He had become a completely different person. He was angry most of the time. He started drinking. He wasn't pleasant to be around. And he wasn't able to hold down a job anymore Um, to the point where he basically started taking different jobs in different cities and he traveled with his parents, his mother, and uh, in about 12 years later, after having a series of uncontrolled seizures, 
he went comatose and he died. He probably had like a tonic-clonic generalized seizure right. and he went yeah. into a, an epileptic state and he passed away then. But essentially, you know, his case started the idea that there are parts of our brain that essentially controls specific um, characteristics of our behavior. And, and we have similar cases for other parts of the brain. Um, there's this case of HM where they had to, uh, um, because of seizures, they had to take away the frontal temporal area uh, of the brain. And, and, and as a result of that, we, we recognize the fact that that area of the brain is actually dedicated to short-term memory. So this person would never be able to develop memories and it would be always in short-term memory. And, and then uh, the uh, stroke syndromes, where a person has a stroke in the um, uh, Broca's area and they can't produce language. So these unfortunate cases give us a picture into the anatomy of the brain. And this was probably the most famous one and the most, uh, um, it, it opened up an entire world of neuroscience. Right. And so interestingly, seven years after his <clears throat> death, um, his brother gave, um, he was exhumed and his brother gave his skull and the tamping rod to the doctor who subsequently donated it to Harvard University. And so they're still exhibited in the museum mm -hmm. today. But that was initial the initial um, door to understanding more and more about front, frontal lobe and the, and the brain function. So coming back to FTDs, the different types of FTD. So we talked about the behavioral variant. The next one is primary progressive aphasia. And I think people actually came to hear about it on social media as well because of the unfortunate, unfortunate situation with Bruce Willis's yeah. condition. Uh, primary progressive aphasia is essentially a change in the ability to communicate, to use language, to speak, to write, to read, and understand what others are, are saying. And this includes difficulty using uh, or understanding words, which is, uh, you know, uh, producing words, um, understanding words and also producing words. Uh, people with primary progressive aphasia may have either, you know, a inability to speak or inability to understand. And sometimes they have both of them, which makes it really difficult to, to uh, function. Yeah, they fall along the same line as the stroke types, right? The language stroke types, the aphasias. Uh, the um, uh, the motor aphasia and the receptive aphasia. The motor aphasia is the part of the brain, the frontal part of the brain, well, the frontal temporal part of the brain where you are producing language. So this person is usually aware of what they're trying to say, but they can't produce, so they're very frustrated. Whereas the receptive part, where they uh, they can uh, they can um, they cannot uh, they can produce, but they don't understand what they're saying, so it's just gibberish coming out. Uh, and then there's the intermediary thereof. And this actually falls along those lines because, again, it's anatomic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. At this point, I think researchers don't really fully understand the biological basis of the different types of uh, primary progressive aphasia. But like you said, it just depends on which part of the brain is involved in the new degenerative uh, processes. Uh, uh, but ironically, the genetically, we're beginning to learn, for example, the, the um, uh, pro uh, productive type, the uh, pro uh, PPA type, is 80% genetic, tau-driven, mm. whereas the semantic type, the receptive type, is actually not as genetically driven. It's a, 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 you'll go, go over the genetics, but it's a different kind of genes. So we, we know that the patterns of that language are pathways that are affected by certain proteins that are driven by certain genes. And when that genetic process starts, it damages that whole pathway. Um, and that's where the opportunity lies, actually, in the next few years, hopefully, 
for treatments for the, these diseases. Absolutely. So there's another type of FTD, um, FTD with motor neuron disease. And uh, this essentially is a combination of a behavioral variant of FTD along with um, ALS um, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And in addition to the behavior and language seen in FTD, people with FTD ALS, they experience progressive weakness of their muscles and they start having very fine jerks in their legs, wiggling in their muscles. And it's just a really sad, slow, chronic uh, loss of movement in the limbs. And then it starts affecting them centrally with their lungs and with their heart function as well. Mm -hmm. Symptoms of um, either of these diseases can appear first. They can have behavior issues or they can have musculoskeletal issues. And um, like you said, changes in certain genes have been found in some people with FTD ALS, although most of the cases are not hereditary. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's talk about what essentially causes FTDs. What do we know so far? Yeah, it's, as you talked about genes, although we say that uh, all diseases are driven to some extent by genes, but the higher penetrant genes are rarer in Alzheimer's, it's actually more common in FTDs. So genetics, although still not absolute, they have a greater part when it comes to FTDs. And that's why the, the nature of it being earlier in age, right? So genes have a bigger part when it comes to FTDs. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> the scientists have described um, these genes um, and based on the different types of loss of neurons and abnormal proteins that have been seen in the brain. Um, the protein, the abnormal forms of proteins, um, the most common one is tau. tau. And it is associated with TDP43, which stands for TAR DNA binding protein with molecular weight 43 kilodalton. But Correct. TDP43 has been the, associated. Yeah, those are two separate types. So the, the tauopathy types and the TDP43 um, are, are different uh, types. And the tau protein is incredibly interesting because... The tau protein is a stabilizer protein inside the cells, and it binds to these microtubules, these, these incredible long uh, uh, microtubules that give structure to the cells. Also, they're the foundation of transport in the cells. So it's almost like railways within the cells that hold the system, hold the structure and everything, and tau holds it together. But when there's a tauopathy, when there's an abnormality, phosphorus binds to it, and then they clump up, and all of a sudden you see these structures just crumble down. Well, you don't see it, but that's the ultimate outcome. And that's where the process um, uh, starts. And by the way, it's almost like infectious because once one cell has this tauopathy, somehow it transmits it to another cell, another cell, another cell. Yeah. So if you can stop it one place, here's the clue, if we can stop it in one place or early enough stage, there's a possibility that this, this almost infectious kind of a process, it's not infectious, but the way it moves can be stopped and the disease can be, uh, can be halted. And actually, that is a very important part of what scientists are looking into the future as far as stopping this disease, right. this movement or this spread that you're talking about. It's almost like a prion-like spread. It is. You know, it, it just is. moves from the, the abnormality moves from one cell to another. So um, scientists use, basically think that the next phase of research will involve um, multifaceted or comprehensive treatment where FTD is going to be treated like diseases um, such as HIV or yes. epilepsies, where you actually use multiple different medications for different things to stop 
you know, a spread to stop a change. Mm -hmm. So it's very exciting. All right. And so um, specifically, it's, uh, so, so this was the tau uh, protein that you talked about. Um, and then the other one that has been associated um, that we just mentioned was the TDP43. Um, again, um, many frontotemporal lobe disorders can result um, due to TDP43. The next gene is called the GRN gene, and it can lead to lower production of certain proteins. Progranulin Pro is the protein. Yes. And this in turn can cause another protein, which uh, the TDP43, to go awry in brain cells. So why are these important? Because it appears that cells that grow together die together. And that means that the genes are unique in patterns of cellular growth in the brain, connections between systems of the brain. So when you see that when one pattern is affected, gene is affected, you know exactly which cellular patterns are going to be affected and where anatomically they're going to grow. So we have quite a bit of information already. If it's this kind of gene, by the way, the genes you can actually determine earlier now, and, 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 uh, and if you know that this gene is awry uh, early enough, then what you can do is uh, halt it, uh, uh, address the anomaly so that the pathology doesn't start taking place. And in most of these cases, the cells start dying fast. Yeah. So uh, later in the stage, not early on. Okay, the last one that we have on the list is called the C9ORF72 gene or ORF gene. And this was uh, noted as a very unusual uh, gene and it appears to be the most common genetic abnormality in familial frontotemporal lobe dementias and familial ALS. Correct. All right, so, so those are the main genes. And in most cases, 10 to 30% of the behavioral variant of FTD is due to specific genetic causes. And family history of dementia is reported in up to 40% of cases of frontotemporal lobe dementias, uh, although a clear autosomal dominant history accounts for only about 10%. So um, family history might increase risk, but if it's autosomal dominant, and the only way we can actually find that out is through genetic testing, then the chances of you know a parent uh, essentially um, transmitting this into their offspring is about you know ten percent. And what's interesting also is that there are some movement disorders that have the same kind of patterns. We have cortical basal degeneration and progressive supranuclear policy, which is a movement disorder plus behavioral disorder that rapidly progresses. I saw these patients in NIH when I was there, and these really sad cases that would progress over. A, a few years, three to three to four years, would progress rapidly. There are tauopathies. Tau protein again is abnormal, and then here's the interesting thing: CTE, chronic traumatic injury, uh, uh, encephalopathy from uh, sports or uh, repetitive head injuries, also seem to instigate the same pathways. So you see, a pa so the question is: is is this some kind of a uh, you know uh, post trauma phenomenon where the tau process is instigated? Or is is you know is the tau the, uh, is a, a downstream consequence? So you can see that even CTE is connected to this tau pattern that which falls into the frontotemporal category in a very soft way. We're beginning to learn more and more about this interplay of patterns, genetic variations, and and protein abnormalities, and what we could potentially do about it. But just to clarify, we haven't really seen any association between trauma and FTD in observational studies, have we? No, no, but the, but the, the tau protein does accumulate. 
So that was the unusual finding that why would, you know, uh, uh, head trauma specifically bring about tauopathies in a way. Yeah. That is a fascinating association that is still being studied. Correct. correct. And hopefully we'll learn more. All right. So how is um, FTD diagnosed? And this is a question from the Henderson family on the channel as well. So FTD, like we said earlier, can be hard to diagnose because the symptoms are very similar to other conditions, specifically psychiatric conditions, depression, anxiety, sometimes schizophrenia. So it can make it very confusing. But it initially starts with a good history. I think a neurologist is trained to figure out patterns of behavior change and whether it's combined with any other neurological mm -hmm. focal uh, neurological deficits that may point towards a neurodegenerative condition rather than a psychiatric condition. So they will get a very thorough history. They will do a neurological examination. They will do a personal uh, and a family medical history. Um, then they can order some blood tests to rule out other conditions that may mimic these behavioral issues. Uh, at times, they do some genetic testing, but most of the time, that's not necessary. Imaging is a very core part of diagnosing FTDs. So that can include uh, um, MRI, a structural MRI that looks at the structure of the brain. And we can also do some met metabolic studies such as FDG PET scans. And the exam is pretty interesting because a lot of times when we do neurological exam and neuro neuropsychological exam, we look at behavior, but more importantly, we look at executive functions. So things like... Uh, what they call trails, uh, trails A, trails B, where you have a number to a letter to a number, and you don't tell them that that's the pattern. You say, okay, and then you have multiple of those, and you give one sequence. So it's one to A, A to B, uh, A to two. Where, where where do you go next? So it's two to B, B to three, three to C, C to four, four to, D, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. My frontal lobe is still functioning at this point. So that's a pattern. And other things are Stroop, Whereas inhibition and disinhibition, where you say, look away from this uh, this light that turns on. And you can do a few and then, but then you start making mistakes if you have frontal temporal lobe dementia or disinhibition. Or you say, look away from my the hand that opens up and, and they can't. They keep looking at, no, I say, look away from the hand that opens up. So those are some of the things. And then there's another one, which is Loria, which is I ask people to say, do this, copy this. And that's simple enough, isn't it? So for people on the podcast who are not yeah. looking at what <laughs> Dean is doing. Fist. Yeah, he's uh, making a fist on his palm. And then uh, then a, a knife-like action and then hand down, slap down. Yeah. So, so doing this repetitively one steps, after the other. Three steps. And so... That, that speaks to multi-step processing, ability to follow multi-step processing, executive function. And it's a three-step process. They have difficulty with doing those. Not all of them, but you see some. And then neurologically, things like glabella, where you come, uh, you tap them on the forehead and say, don't blink. And anyone would potentially be able to stop themselves from blinking. But people in front of temple lobe, some of them, a lot of, a lot of times they can't then inhibit themselves. And or or snout where you touch their lip and their their with your finger and their lip meets the finger beforehand. It's almost like a very primordial childlike behavior meetings. It's almost almost like suckling. So sometimes when there is disinhibition, some of our very primordial reflexes are Come surfaced back to the surface, and the the glabella and the snout and also the pommel reflexes, they come out. And so a neurologist is able to actually detect these very, very subtle um, exam findings and equate it to a frontal lobe issue. Um, another one is um, um, inability to stop 
so you're moving their arms and you say, don't resist me, but they can't stop resisting. They just, that, that, that because it's a very um, uh, primordial, very old, basic behavior. Another very cool thing about this disinhibition where things that have been inhibited before, you know, infant, infant reflexes come back to the surface. Another thing that you see in some patients is all of a sudden they develop this artistic capacity a remarkable artistic capacity, and why? Because as a child, they were they had some artistic talent, and then it was this it was inhibited by culture, by by community, by by themselves, whatever. And now that the inhibition is gone, it comes back to the surface. So there's a disinhibition of behavior. So the no doesn't work anymore. It's always just doing, right? Um, and and they can't stop themselves. And and also there's the language component, which is a completely different place in the brain, but it's still within the same category. Claudia has a good question. She says, how strange that the person affected exhibits such strange behavior, but they're unable to recognize that in themselves. Why? Beautiful question. And so this speaks to our humanity. A lot of times, um, you know, this is an unusual, very extreme variant of it. But I mean, to think of it, not to make it a little, not too personal, but all of us, we do things that in, 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 in retrospect, we say, how is it that I was able to because we were disinhibited by the emotion of the moment, by the extreme situation of the moment. So that's an re extreme reflection of all our behaviors, uh, but in this case, much more extreme because the behavior is not creating a signal to say, oh, this is abnormal. That, that signal is never triggered. So um, it gives a really elucidating and clear picture into our human behavior as a spectrum of inhibitions. I always say, if so the whole concept of free will, I, uh, it's, it's, as a neurologist, it's kind of questionable because uh, we can see from these behaviors how other things lead to further behaviors. But nonetheless, we're not going to get to that controversial uh, statement, but uh, most of the behaviors that we have are a sequence of other behaviors that add up to each other. So yes, you and I are aware of our sequence, but this person is just not aware of that that sequence. Just it's just oh, that awareness is lacking. Absolutely. I hope uh, that's helpful. The patient also um, benefits quite a bit from a psychiatric evaluation um, to help determine whether the depression or some other mental health condition is causing or contributing to the to the condition. Um, and if there is a need to identify a familial case or a genetic trait, only then genetic tests are done or sometimes brain autopsies are done after a person uh, passes away to confirm a diagnosis of FTD. How often in your clinic, Dean, do you do genetic testing for FTD? I don't. Only in the, in the research setting we do. The, the, the thing that is very unique as far as testing is concerned is neuropsychological testing, which can really clearly delineate the disease well. And, and to, to, to a layperson, it seems like a, a continuation of psych psychiatric problems or psychological problems. But no, the distinct behavioral differences for FTD are very easily elucidated or brought about by neuropsychologists. So a nice neuropsychology test. The other thing that's very useful, and by the way, this is the one thing that um, uh, um, insurance companies do cover uh, as far as imaging is concerned, is FTD, uh, um, uh, um, this um, imaging technique, FDG, uh, FDG sorry, FDG PET, uh, which uh, the imaging technique, which usually insurance companies don't cover for Alzheimer's and other things. But if the diagnosis of FTD is there, 
the insurance companies will approve it. Why? Because it's really good in distinguishing FTD from Alzheimer's. And FTD, you can dis clearly see lower me metabolic function in the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. In fact, one of the more useful techniques um, uh, that I've seen that clearly delineates FTD from uh, Alzheimer's. Wonderful. I can only remember one patient during my training um, as a resident and during my attending years of one patient in whom we did genetic testing and we did genetic testing in his children as well because he had it, his father had it, his yeah. uncle had it, and it was a familiar uh, type of frontotemporal lobe dementia and his young children wanted to know what their risk factors were, but I don't recall ever doing genetic testing on others. Correct. Amazing. All right, so uh, researchers are studying different ways to diagnose FTD earlier and more accurate and distinguish them from different types of dementia. And that's where research comes and that's where all these new biomarkers that are available are coming. But they're not covered by insurance and they're not routine um, as far as I know. And they're also uh, trying to explore different uh, imaging other than FDG PET scan, you know, functional MRI imaging and ligand imaging exactly. to see if they can identify um, tau protein in the brain as early as possible. And, and the earlier, the better, because if we identify earlier, of course, one is we can give a heads up and, and tell the family that this is uh, what's coming and they have to be aware and so that people can't make mistakes. Oh, that's another thing that happens. When people have judgment problems and executive problems, they do um, disinhibited behavior, the gambling, spending uh, um, exorbitant amounts of money on the wrong thing. So those can be abated and or decisions as far as driving is concerned. The other thing is if you identify the protein abnormality, which now we're getting almost extremely well at this, then you can, if, or if you identify it early enough, then you can institute treatments to abate it, to block it, to, to, to stop the cells from growing from one to the next. And I think we're around the corner. We're right there. We're within a few years uh, with the help of all these amazing tools and uh, AI and, and uh, uh, these uh, incredible CRISPR and others. We are at, at the brink of identifying diseases early enough and identifying treatments to these protein abnormalities and genetic abnormalities early enough to stop the process. I, and I'm, 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 this is not a hyperbole. Yep, I hope so. I'm, it's such a devastating disease that um, I hope that we can, we can definitely find you know, treatment in the next few years. But so far, based on the guideline-directed therapies and in the literature, there's really no cure for FTD. And there's also no way to slow it down or prevent the diseases. And a lot of our audience and people who have actually you know, called in and sent messages is they want to know if there's anything they can do ahead of time to prevent this devastating disease. And unfortunately, we don't have anything as of yet. No, not really. But, but uh, even Dr. Bruce Miller, who's the world-renowned specialist in this in uh, UCSF, well, I was uh, listening to one of his talks. I've known, I known him, I've known him for many years. Um, uh, lifestyle has some component in this. We really are not as clear as far as lifestyle and FTD is concerned as, 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 as much as we are with uh, vascular dementia, with stroke and Alzheimer's. With FTD, we're not as clear, but there seems to be inflammatory pathways that can be affected by lifestyle. How much, we don't know, so uh, might as well do it and, and see you know, the consequences. But there aren't large enough populations where we can then study the, this disease at, at large scale. Um, the latest grants are to put large populations into studies. So the, that means that 
identifying all the FTDs in different regions of the country, um, uh, and maybe the world, and then putting them through studies. Um, and that's going to help out quite a bit. So um, that's the challenge we have with FTD because of their numbers as well. So currently, when a patient is diagnosed with FTD, uh, the treatment is focused on managing their behaviors. Um, and the de the, it depends on the severity of their behavior. They can have things like agitation, compulsion, aggressiveness. They can be quite impulsive. Um, and they can have eating disorders. Um, and these can all improve with the use of some, you know, antipsychotics and antidepressant medication depending on the body's, you know, the, the person's body, weight, age, and other characteristics, they can come up with a concoction or a combination of different treatments. Oh. Um, uh, obviously, it's very important for us physicians and people who are treating uh, cases of FDD to be very cautious, um, especially when it comes to treating elderly because they don't do very well with antipsychotic medication. It increases their risk of mortality because of cardiac events and falls and things like that. Um, there are some medications that work really well for Alzheimer's dementia and for memory problems, but when they use those medications for FTD patients, it actually makes them worse. Yeah. So cholinesterase inhibitors are not beneficial and it can actually make their behavioral uh, abnormalities even worse. And as far as managing the behavior change is concerned, that's what you basically spend most of the time in your clinic yeah, to talk to family members and caregivers to help them understand what the patient is going through and help them gauge where they are in their journey and how to meet them and how to allay some of their fears and also make sure that they're comfortable, that their quality of life is okay. Yeah, redirection is a great technique where nobody knows the moment of agitation uh, of the patient better than the family members. So as soon as they see tensions building up, before it becomes overwhelming, uh, redirection techniques, a story that's pleasant. It doesn't matter if you repeat it several times. We'd use this in Alzheimer's as well, but especially here it's useful. Uh, redirection techniques are great. And also drugs that lower the, the, the tendency of agitation, like Depakote and others, in specific situations. So you have to talk to your uh, uh, you know, a physician to see it's appropriate. Those drugs are not um, uh, powerful and, and, and they don't have great side effects like antipsychotics, uh, but they are good because they've been tested for decades, lower side effects. It's not without side effects, but lower side effects. But also more importantly, they, they raise the threshold. They make it less likely for the person to break through as far as behavior is concerned. And, and, and there are other drugs as well that, that, that depends on the situation and the person and circumstances. I know you and I talk a lot about uh, the neuroscience of dementia, but I think it would be fantastic if we could spend some time on an episode with the Neuroacademy members and also with our audience on podcast to talk about um, caregivers and how they can, you know, slowly and gradually work with their loved one or with a patient with Alzheimer's dementia or dementia in general and how to deal with them, what are some of the behavioral modifications that they should go through and, um, and exhibit and implement. Uh, I think this is such a fascinating topic and it's very helpful as well. So hopefully we can do that sometime. Absolutely. All right. So uh, things that you had mentioned before we started this conversation was things like, you know, making sure that we never challenge the patient, that we never really... Um, uh, upset them in a way where they feel as if they're being belittled or as if they're being challenged in any way. Don't talk to them, but talk with them and always have open-ended questions. 
Um, another another uh, specific technique was to um, essentially kind of you know ignore some of the mistakes that they they make, and if they ask something over and over again, to be able to be there and understand and answer them. Uh, maintaining a regular schedule is very important That's for them. That's a big them. one. Absolutely. So going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, maintaining a routine around the house when they eat, when they sleep, when they take a bath. And if compulsive eating is an issue to consider supervising eating, limiting food choices, and making things as simple as possible. So for example, locking a refrigerator, distracting the person with other activities, mm -hmm. etc. And this is all to ensure safety. That's it. Yeah. So... Um, at this point, as far as prevention is concerned, and if somebody is interested in finding out what their risk factors are for FTD, and if they've seen a family member go through it, what would be the best thing to do? Well, most importantly is finding a neurologist, um, especially in an academic setting, because it's it's such a rarity and such a complex disease that uh, only specialists would know the latest things and the latest trials and the latest studies. Getting involved in studies is great, although you might not benefit yourself, but or the loved ones might not, but it's definitely going to help a lot of people. I really believe in studies um, um, and people being involved. As much as we talk about lifestyle, we're not against the science side. We're not against the molecular and, and research side of things. So definitely get involved. And, and more importantly, uh, if the loved ones are not somebody close to you, being there for the, for the other family members because it does get overwhelming, especially to the caregivers. If, if Alzheimer's is bad, this is this can become even worse because of the behavioral aspects of it. So it can become incredibly overwhelming. Being support, um, um, teaching some techniques, uh, things of that nature are incredibly helpful. I would also add here that it's important to um, see a special a specialist, a, Swiss, a specialist yeah. neurologist in a university setting. Exactly because they tend to be associated or affiliated with some research projects and things that, you know, uh, certain amenities that may not be available for the regular community physicians Such and neurologists as, as well. Correct, or, yes. Or ligands, exactly. Yeah, so doing a little bit of research in wherever they are would be yeah. very helpful. Any questions? I think, I, I think those were the two questions from the Henderson family and Claudia. And uh, in the community, there was a question about uh, the percentage of frontotemporal lobe dementia. How? What is we the percentage about, yeah. of that? And we did talk about that. Um, Suzanne actually says, my mother began her journey with this and progressed to Alzheimer's according to her daughter, doctor. Is that possible? Uh, although the possibility of having two diseases is there, it's extremely rare. It's most likely, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is the case in your mother's uh, situation, that it would, might have been a misdiagnosis early on. Um, that happens quite often where a person is given one diagnosis and later that diagnosis changed. Um, uh, the likelihood of having two diseases, especially Alzheimer's and frontotemporal, although it's there, it's it's much less common. And for people to have followed the, the ideology of the uh, amyloid and the tau and the tauopathy and the genetic over time would mean that uh, it was done at a time where we knew all of that. So my proclivity is to think that maybe it was a misdiagnosis that was corrected later. Mm. And and we often see that, you're right, yeah. absolutely. I hope this was helpful. We're going to post it into the homepage where you can see it later. And we will also post it on the audio uh, version as well. A Henderson family said, the focus you mentioned to provide information for the caregivers would be helpful. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things we want to do is create a caregiver club or group. Yes. And, and also have some resources available uh, to caregivers, uh, some, uh, some general basic uh, resources, and that's important. 
very Absolutely. important. Absolutely. Well, have a great evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Mm-hmm.